one of the things that you just kept hearing all of these creators talk about was the power of their email list. And especially today, as the social media landscape continues to change and all this talk of algorithms and new apps, email is unique because there is no algorithm in an inbox. People either allow you to send them newsletters or they decide to unsubscribe. Hi, and welcome back to Careers 2.0. We're back after, well, let's call it summer break, even though it was not necessarily summer. And we're coming back strong. The episode that we have for you today, well, we recorded it actually before the break. I just really wanted to keep it to start the season two with a bang. And I think we have one. My guest today is Melissa Guller. She's an expert in online education, having worked with great creators and brands like Teachable. You can hear it in a way she talks. It's like listening to your favorite teacher. I hope you're educated and entertained. Enjoy. I want to start by talking about your experience. So from musical degree to working with Teachable and so on, um, you had a quite an experience before jumping onto the entrepreneurship yourself. And I just wonder, do you think that your entrepreneurial journey would be possible without those exper experiences and without the experience of your uh, grandfathers and, and father? <laughs> it's funny. I used to joke that I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And what's ironic now is that the business that I have didn't exist when I was choosing a major or back when I was trying to decide what that career should look like. But I think I've gotten here just by saying yes to opportunities. So whether it was the first job I had out of college to being asked to teach in-person classes to realizing that people wanted to hire me as a consultant, I just kind of kept saying yes. And through those decisions, it helped me realize that entrepreneurship would be a great way for me to kind of create the dream version of a job and career that a full-time employer could kind of come close to but couldn't quite get all the way there. So I definitely think every piece of music I played, every job that I held, just everything that led me to here, like it carved a unique path I don't think I could have had otherwise. So I have only positive things to say about my very winding and perhaps unconventional road. But I noticed that I think you said somewhere that one of the first things that you decided to focus on um, wh where you created your your own business was collecting emails. Am I right? And, and where that idea came from? Is it from previous experiences and when you see it, saw it working? Yeah, I have a unique perspective on the industry because before I was a solopreneur, I worked behind the scenes for a big name creator, Ramit Sethi, and then also for Teachable. So I had this lens of analyzing data from businesses who were doing really well, but I also got to see why a lot of businesses never made it off the ground. And one of the things that you just kept hearing all of these creators talk about was the power of their email list. And especially today, as the social media landscape continues to change and all this talk of algorithms and new apps, email is unique because there is no algorithm in an inbox. People either allow you to send them newsletters or they decide to unsubscribe. So I think that having that email list early on was crucial because not only did it let me build my own audience that was platform independent, but it also helped signal what was resonating with my audience enough to give me an email address. So it was also a form of audience research. Can you tell us a little bit about the early stages? So 
podcast was the top of the funnel for you, right? From which you drove to email list. Can you tell us how you planned it and how it looked like and what was the thing that actually drove people to subscribe and leave you their email addresses? I would actually say that my podcast was my middle of funnel. So when I started Wit & Wire, my main top of funnel discovery channel was Pinterest. I knew that online business owners were going there to search for answers. And that was always my target audience, creators, coaches. Um, and I knew I would talk about course creation one day. But at the time, I still had my full-time job at Teachable. And so I thought, what's something else other than course creation that these business owners might be curious about? And I knew I had a background in podcasting. So I said, let's start with that. So I created blog posts. I had pins that led to those posts. And within the posts, I had email opt-ins to build my email list. And over time, I decided I could launch a podcast under the Wit & Wire brand as a means of connecting with my existing audience. But I would say that at least for me and what I've noticed from other creators I've talked to, podcasting has often fallen more in the middle of the funnel because mm -hmm. there's not as strong of like an algorithmic push for people to discover new podcasts or new episodes compared to something like YouTube. People go to YouTube to find answers to their problems. So I have found that with Wit & Wire, my YouTube channel has grown more quickly and produced buyers at a faster and more consistent rate only because it's a discovery channel. But the people who tune into the podcast adore it and it's deepened their relationship with my brand. So I think both are great. They just serve different purposes in the funnels that I've built. I saw you actually mentioned that like 2019, Pinterest was the thing that was working. Now it's YouTube and TikTok, right? So was it the um, was that the landscape of social media changed or just your personal interests and skills adjusted and now you just decided that this will be the better, better, better place for you? A great question. And I think it's a bit of both. Pinterest still serves a lot of business owners really well because similarly to YouTube, it is a bit of a search engine. People do go to Pinterest. They have a topic in mind. They seek out pins. And I think another thing that you have in common is longevity. I have pins from 2019 that still drive traffic to my business. And I think that's a bit different from social media platforms like Instagram or TikTok or LinkedIn, et cetera. So for me, I knew I wanted to start with something that had a search engine. And Pinterest is still successful. I still use it. But I wanted to try YouTube because as a course creator, I knew that putting my face on camera would help me build relationships with people. Like I'm selling a video-based product. So it would make sense that people would want to see me on video. But I also thought, people go to YouTube because they're willing to learn from videos. So that was also an ideal audience for me, somebody who's selling courses to get in front of people who had already kind of raised their hands and said, yes, this is a method with which I am willing to learn. And what's the difference between YouTube and short form videos like TikTok or Instagram for that matter, uh, that are more of a discovery platform based on algorithm rather than search engine uh, discoverability? And what kind of conversions do you see from especially something like TikTok, where you may drive a lot of views and go viral? I heard a lot of people say, yeah, I went viral, had a lot of followers, didn't translate to business in any way. I think going viral is this fleeting idea that people think is the ultimate goal. But if you go viral once, that's just what it is. It's a fleeting moment. So unless you have the infrastructure in place to continue building relationships with people and then have something perhaps to offer them, it's not going to make a long-term impact. I will say what's interesting with YouTube is now they have both types of video. They have shorts and they have the full-length featured like more than a minute long content as they've always had. So short-form video in the classic kind of reels TikTok way that we consume it, I think what's nice about that is 
the algorithms do put you in front of new audiences, particularly on TikTok. That's what I found. And so I was able to become familiar to more people because they were incentivized to help showcase creators to their audience. They want people to stay in their platform. So it's always a good idea to work with the platform and with their goals. And so I think shorts are a great way to help people know who you are and get kind of like a taste of your personality and what you talk about. But with YouTube, I'm able to deepen relationships. People will find YouTube videos on my channel. They'll tell me that they've binged a couple and then they'll make a four-figure purchase pretty quickly. And it's because you're able to build that kind of trust by showcasing your expertise and helping people solve real problems. So I think one is more about discovery and one is more about building that trust with an audience so that they feel comfortable making a purchase. Let me ask you, as long as I have an expert on podcasting on the podcast, then I, I need to use your advice a little bit, you know? Um, so let's say you started a podcast like we did. Uh, and of course, we went video first, right? Going any other way seems unreasonable. Would you, would you go for something like that if you were building a funnel for your business or any other of your clients' businesses? Would you even use podcasting anymore? Or you're like, better to just stick to YouTube videos, uh, more searchable, you know, this conversation, uh, if we don't cut it into clips that are searchable based on topic, it's going to be just long, one long interview. So we already have to have this audience of people looking at it. Do you think that for people who just start out, that the still podcast is a good thing to try, or you would go somewhere else and podcast can be just addition later on? If I had no audience and I was starting something from scratch, I don't think I would start with a podcast. I would start with something that has a search bar, like YouTube, like Pinterest, even like blogging, it does take longer. And I would even say to a different degree, people do go to TikTok and they type something in the search bar. A lot of data shows that Gen Z uses TikTok the way that other generations use Google. So I want to be where people go to find answers. And I think that's the biggest reason why podcasting podcasting is tougher to build an audience just from the start. But over time, I think it can make sense for the right creators. And I will say it also just totally depends on your audience. If you know that your audience is already consuming podcasts as a means of deepening their knowledge on your topic, it could make sense. What I will say in that case is that it could also benefit your podcast to become a guest or do collaborations with other podcasts. You want to put yourself in front of existing pools of your ideal listener. And I think that's why partnerships with other podcasters can make a lot of sense. Exactly. So that's my question to you. You are not podcasting that intensively anymore, but you're a guest on our podcast. So is that also a part of your marketing strategy to put yourself in front of the right people on the right podcasts? Definitely. Right now, I'm, you know, only one human. I only have so much capacity. So I've realized that for Witten Wire in its current state, focusing on YouTube videos is a better use of my time and energy because it directly leads to more sales and more conversions for my business. I get so many positive reviews on the Wit & Wire podcast, so it's tough to put it on pause, yeah. but undeniably YouTube makes sense for me right now. But that said, whenever I'm building my own audience, I'm always considering the three main channels, which are organic, partnerships, and paid. All types of marketing fall into one of those three buckets. So for me, organic is where YouTube falls in. Then with partnerships, I'm always looking for podcasts where I can be a guest or speaking virtually or um, even in person. I'm always considering paid as well. I think paid is a great way to amplify conversion and funnels that are already working. So I always have those three on my mind, organic partnerships and paid. One last question about podcasts. You mentioned very good reviews and I would definitely be one of those good reviews. Uh, I really love the quality and the conversations and the value that you bring in, uh, in Wittenmeyer podcast. 
something that stood out to me specifically was your editing style. So whereas you have conversation with people, you highly edit them that your questions often like disappear and you narrate the conversation more as in a documentary type of uh, type of way. Was that a conscious choice and why did you make it? It was. And that's something that I did in the third season because I taught about podcasting. It was fun for me to try different things. I've probably edited well over 100 episodes at this point across my career, both for myself and for other people. And by the third season, I wanted to do this comparison because I don't believe business is one size fits all. And I realized in order to incorporate multiple viewpoints and also to respect my viewers' time, my listeners' time, I I wanted to shorten and really just get the best pieces of info. And in order to do that, it made sense to piece them together with my own narration. It takes way longer. So that's another reason why it felt hard to prioritize that. But I really enjoyed it. So there's also, I think, the joy factor of business and of creation. Like if you find something and you really enjoy it and people are resonating with it, I think that that counts for a lot. But like I said, for me, I couldn't justify the amount of time I was spending on those episodes. And I had to make tough decisions about where I wanted to go with my business. While we're talking about time, um, one of the most common ways for creators to um, optimize their time is content repurposing in one way or another. Do you do it? And if you do, in what way and how the sort of um, content funnel looks like for you? As perhaps an unpopular opinion, I did not believe in content repurposing for a long time, especially because I'm mostly a solopreneur. I definitely have help from contractors and they are wonderful, but I'm the only full-time person at Wit & Wire. And I just thought to myself, why would I spread myself so thin and try to put content on all of these platforms? Wouldn't it make more sense to double down on the main one or two places where I know my best audiences are and just focus there. And that's what I did for years. And I would say where repurposing is starting to make sense to me is just considering how can I put the same topic in different places, but it's not as copy and paste as people think. Like the way that you create content for YouTube versus podcasting versus Instagram versus LinkedIn, the same idea might work, but the format will be different the image style, the video quality. It it can't just be a copy-paste solution. So that's why for years I didn't believe in the word repurposing because I felt like people heard copy-paste. But I do think that it can make sense to test new platforms as long as perhaps you're also being kind to yourself about not continuing in 10 different places long-term. I don't think that's necessary. I think it's good to dabble, but it's also good to decide and commit. The contractors that you mentioned, um, in which part of your business are they the most important and necessary? Do you outsource things that you just don't like doing uh, or outsource things that are taking the most time? I tend to outsource things that take the most time. And I'm also thinking about what is high leverage of my own time that I couldn't have somebody else do. So I hired a virtual assistant as one of the earliest contractor hires. But at this time, I also have a YouTube editor That's definitely a skill that if I had infinite time, I really enjoy tinkering and the techie side of things. I just know that it's something that other people are already more skilled at than I am, and I can pay them to support my business and to help me grow. Um, So I have an accountant. I have a few other contractors that I work with on a project-to-project basis, but I would say consistently having help with a virtual assistant and with the YouTube editing those have been a huge, uh, a positive impact, I would say, on the ability to scale my business. And what about ads? You mentioned ads before, and that's something that creators 
not often, especially those that are so strong like you in organic that talk about. Can you tell us about experience with it and if you did it all by yourself or you actually hired professionals to do it? Because that sometimes seems like a gambling game. I run all of my own ads. I, for transparency, I do have a marketing background. I was the director of marketing at Teachable. I led Ramit's teams. So this is something that I had a comfort level with coming into it. And even so, the tech is such a beast. I don't think it's very intuitive. So I can see why it's daunting because you have to learn a whole new skill and you're spending your own money. So where I have found that ads have really worked well for me is when I know that there's a purchase opportunity within seven days. So as an example, I do not run ads just to boost views or listens. I don't run ads that go to an email opt-in unless there is a pitch within seven days behind it. The two most common ways that I run ads are either to what's typically called a low ticket offer under 100 US dollars or something that might go to a free webinar or masterclass that has a pitch to more of a signature course or product. So that way I'm able to measure the return on ad spend. And sometimes it can make sense to have the target of breaking even, but I'm usually aiming for 1.5 to 3x on my spend. And that's what I've consistently been able to do over time. So that's really my best tip. If you're going to run ads, start small, just get that small budget going. But I would recommend running ads where you do have some type of pitch within a week so that it's a little bit easier for you to measure if your spend has a return. Do you think that the um, the ads have to be backed by some sort of online presence or content? Do you find that people would go click through your profile, check who you actually are, or the offer itself and the quality of the ad determines the success? It's tough to say because I'm not able to see exactly what people do. But I will say I have a lot of people who I can tell just based on when they opt into my email list, I can tell that they're purchasing within 24 to 48 hours of discovering Witten Wire. And I've had people tell me in, you know, new student conversations that they just heard about me and decided to join because it was exactly what they were looking for. And so ads aside, I think a selling tip I would share is that we can't create desire in other people. The easiest way to sell is to find an existing unmet desire that an audience has and then position your course downloadable membership merch, position that as a solution to their problem. So I think people are able to purchase from my ads pretty quickly because I'm able to meet that existing need. And I think I'm also able to build trust because I do have a bit of a resume. I have an unfair advantage. I know that. And it wasn't always the case. Even when Witten Wire was new, I was able to convert people not as often into a high ticket purchase, but maybe to a $27 purchase or maybe to a free webinar where I can then build trust and then make a pitch. So you don't have to have like guru status, but I do think building authority and building it quickly is a skill that will help your ads convert. Yeah, of course. You have, you have. I wouldn't say unfair, but you do have advantage from your experience, of course. What other things, if people don't have such, uh, you know, they have CV, they, they cannot drop names. Uh, what other ways are there to build authority that, that sticks and, and grabs attention. I do think a big one is thought leadership. So especially in a world where generative AI is becoming a big topic of conversation, it's going to increase the output on the internet of content. But what's going to set content apart is when there's a clear point of view, a clear perspective. And you don't have to have expert status to have a point of view. So I would say if you are creating 
blog posts, even podcast episodes, YouTube videos, as you create more, it'll hone your point of view. So rather than thinking you have to be an expert before you get started, I would encourage you to continue creating because that's what will develop your point of view over time. All my first content is so cringeworthy. It did not look like what you're seeing today, which is my 300th course video or my you know 100th piece of content that I might have created. So I would say just continue to showcase your expertise. And we talked about building an email list. That's like a tactical thing to do. But show off your thought leadership. Work with people one-on-one. It's a lot easier to sell one service to one person than it is to jump perhaps ahead to selling more of a one-to-many product like a course. So I would say just see if you can get even a couple of early testimonials, and that builds a lot of expertise if you don't necessarily have like a stacked resume. People just want certainty it'll work, and testimonials are a great way to show that. That's actually a great point, and I, and I saw it also on your course landing page, which is uh, extremely pro. I love it. One of the things on the landing page are a list of things that you uh, should look out for to see if the course is even for you. And one of those, those things where if you plan to sell a low ticket offer, this is probably not for you. You should aim for something higher. If you don't have any experience yet, you should probably go with one-on-one services. So my question is, can you define when the point is of jumping into course creation or product creation? How many I know, testimonials do you need to have in order for you to, be, uh, to, to have this authority? As you're calling out for my sales page, I openly say this is not for everybody yet. It's not that it's exclusive. It's that I want people to join who will be successful. And so I would encourage anybody who wants to sell anything online, don't be afraid of putting that out there to say, this is a great fit if you meet these criteria, but maybe not yet if you're over here and maybe point them in another direction. It's not going to help your business grow if people are joining if they're not ready. So I would say it's, it's been a huge help. Even applications, I think, are a good fit for a lot of more intermediate or advanced offers. But to answer the question, when is somebody ready to sell online courses? I don't think you need guru status. You don't need to be an influencer. You don't need to have a huge audience. But I do think if we're talking about a signature course, typically priced at maybe 500 US dollars or up, it's best to have worked with even a couple of clients. Not only does it validate demand, people are willing to pay you to reach that outcome, but also it helps you hone your own method because a course is a productized version of a process you would walk somebody through if you were working with them individually. So I think it's great to get paid by clients to figure out exactly what that process might look like. Things might surprise you, the order they go in, where they get stuck. But then I also think just logistically, it does make sense to have some kind of seedling audience that could look like a small email list, 500 subscribers. It could look like a following on a platform of choice. So I would say you do need people to sell this course to unless you're very confident with cold pitching or outreach, which I don't think is most people's cup of tea. But beyond just the logistics of do you have people to sell to, once again, it comes down to validating demand. If you were able to build up an email list of, let's say, 500 people, and perhaps you did that by having either a newsletter on a set topic or you had a free resource that was directly tied to the course, you've now validated demand that people were interested in that outcome. So I do think it's a good form of building relationships, building an audience, and also this research concept. So it's a little bit deeper than just do you have people to sell to, but it's not a one size fits all like exact number, but hopefully that's helpful. And can you tell us about your 
how your offer evolved over the years from the beginning, maybe one-on-one services, when you actually monetized a relatively small audience, you said, I didn't even have a K in my, in my Instagram follower account, and you still managed to earn a lot of money with it and how it looks like now. I saw more uh, group courses, uh, group coaching, uh, and, and when do, where do you see it going forward? Do you plan to go products only? totally time independent, or you would like to maintain this sort of um, group community feeling within your uh, within your community? My growth hasn't been exactly linear because when I started Wit & Wire, I mentioned before I had this podcasting course, and that's the first one that I sold. That was what I would call like a signature offer, $500. So not a small investment by any means. And it was still targeted to online business owners. And I was able to sell that for the first time to my audience that I had built up mostly from Pinterest. And then because I had experience, I also did use paid ads to directly pitch a free training that sold that paid offer. And that's how I enrolled the first 20-ish students in that program. And then it evolved from there. And then I think it was about a year and a half later, that's when I launched Course Builders, which is the main signature offer I sell through Wit & Wire. And by then I had an email list. I had people who had been asking me if I could help them sell courses for years because everybody knew my background. So it, it's a bit less linear because I just want to fully acknowledge that I had an audience when I sold the second course. Like Course Builders sold out the first round, all 20 spots, uh, without me doing any social promo really. I might have mentioned it once on Instagram at Max. I didn't run any paid ads for it. It was just the power of the email list and the community that I had built. So I don't think it's necessarily the best example, um, but it is the truth. And it also just shows that when you do have that audience, that thought leadership and people who have been tuning in and following your content and you have a dedicated audience, then you can also pay attention to what they're asking you for and deliver it. That's one of the ways I've been successful over time, too. I, I would say that maybe there is sort of linearity in it. If you look at your job experience as the sort of first step where you provide services one way or another, right? So you gain experience through those services and then you are able to build this, maybe not audience, but definitely thought leadership and knowledge in, in that specific uh, area, right? Yeah. And I can also add, because you asked, do I plan to sell courses? Do I want to have coaching? I have this overall philosophy about course creation. And what I believe is that courses that grow on to be successful, six-figure courses beyond, they actually use different teaching and marketing strategies at each stage of growth. I think this is a lot different from what people assume. They see big name creators. They have these totally self-paced online courses. They sip tea on the beach in Bali or whatever it is that they're up to. And we have this idea that it's totally passive income. And don't get me wrong. I have courses right now that sell every week. They are available year round. They are a form of you know on autopilot. But when those courses launched the very first round for the founders, I was way more involved. I was doing things that didn't scale. I was offering personalized feedback. And I think that that's invaluable because when you do things that don't scale, you learn what works, you build trust, you get more testimonials, and crucially, you can make effective curriculum. And I think that that's often overlooked. What I believe is that courses that work can scale. So if you're able to create a truly effective course that gets real people results, that brings in testimonials, that's what's going to work long term. So I think it's worth investing upfront in a little bit more customization, personalization, high touch with some of those early students. And then over time, you can automate yourself out of the process as much or as little as you want. 
Maybe you do want to do weekly or biweekly group coaching. Maybe you find that you enjoy it. Maybe you want a student community. Maybe you don't want either one. None of those are required, but I think it's nice to test things out and then let your course evolve over time rather than trying to create something perfectly formed before you sell it. Okay, you shared that you made 200 grand, I think it was last year in the calendar year, just from the course. Where do you see yourself in the journey? Is it the early stages where you still provide the personal touch or you're now removing yourself slowly? It's a bit of both. Different programs have different, let's call them features, and the price point reflects that. So for example, in a program that might be 250 to 500 US dollars, that's probably not a price point for me at this point in my business where people are going to get the group coaching and that level of access to me. If we're getting more into four-figure investments, then things like the weekly group coaching sessions, I think they add a lot of value to the experience and I enjoy them. It is not a hardship for me to commit one hour or 90 minutes per week to serve creators who have paid me at that certain price point. Perhaps then at a different price point, we're really like approaching the 5,000 to 10,000 price point. That's a little bit more involvement. People could have one-on-one opportunities or hot seats with me. So I think for each creator, it's up to you to decide what are your preferences when it comes to how you want to engage with students. What do you want your weekly calendar to look like? And then you can craft offers that suit your lifestyle. I think that our preferences matter a lot. So for me, I like a little bit of group coaching, but it has to be at the right price point where it makes sense for the business. Do you think it makes sense to start your offer at a lower uh, price range and gradually increase it while the interest grows? So for example, you charge, let's say 200 per hour of, of, of group coaching, and with time you see more interest, more people coming through the funnel, and you increase it to five, maybe $1,000. Or you think that you should start already at this signature course level and then just add additional maybe services or additional value on top of that? It's a great question. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. I will say, I talk about this concept in my program. I call it phased pricing. And I think the misconception is that course prices should always go up. What I found is that there are different levers that affect price point. And as we were talking about, You might do some things in the beginning that don't scale. You provide a little bit of extra support, extra attention. And because of that, that raises buyer certainty that they're going to reach their outcome in a way that could make up for the fact that there are no testimonials yet or it's newer. But then over time, as you get more testimonials and as the program starts to prove itself, maybe you want to remove yourself a little bit from the process. So perhaps those levers kind of equalize where the price point could stay the same But now you have more proof and more certainty, so you can remove yourself a little bit. Now, on the other hand, for a brand new course, I do agree that it makes sense to offer usually a best ever price. I don't want people to undercut their own value, though, because if your course is supposed to be $1,000 and you charge $100, it won't sell because people won't believe it'll provide the value that you promise. So undercutting the price too much is going to negatively affect your conversion. So you want to kind of pick that sweet spot of what's perhaps the lowest price point that does not undercut the value, but that would be appealing for those early students. And then often it does make sense to increase the price or perhaps remove yourself from some of those personalized touches over time. Got it. Okay, I would like to go a little bit technical perhaps. Uh, We mentioned your landing page, which is awesome. In my opinion, I didn't see any statistics, so maybe you'll, uh, you'll tell me that actually doesn't perform up to your standards. But I wanted to ask you about over the years, what did you what did you see work the best in the landing page? Is it the 
testimonials that are have to be everywhere and as many as possible or the quality of testimonials matters more and then you for example say exactly what's in the course rather than staying mysterious and 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 just giving the the whole plan laid out in front of you what works on the landing page i do think that clarity sells and there's this concept from direct response copywriting it's called the 40 40 20 rule and it's often attributed to a man named admire this rule says that when a buyer is making a decision to purchase, their decision breaks down into three parts. So 40% of the decision comes down to if they want the offer. 40% is if they're in the right audience. And 20% is all creative. So the actual words on the page, the design of the page, the functionality. So just to do the math, 80% of somebody's decision just comes down to if you sold the right thing to the right person. So more than anything, if you find a course that truly solves a problem for a specific audience, and if you've positioned it correctly and you can communicate the value of your offer, that's what's going to sell. The rest is just gravy. And it does make a difference. I think that things like readability on a page, clear, concise language, it's better to be clear rather than clever. I think clearly outlining what people are going to get, including both a bit about the curriculum, but also just literally what's included in this course. Usually when I evaluate other people's course sales pages, the things that I find missing are either clarity about what the course will look like if I were to make a purchase, but also commonly when a course isn't selling, it comes down to me missing what's in it for me as the buyer. Like why would I need to purchase this course? What's the problem it's going to solve? What's the transformation that I'm going to get? Your buyer is always asking what's in it for me. So if anybody wants to read their own sales page to evaluate. It could be a course sales page, membership, a digital product, anything. Ask what's in it for me. Why would the buyer make a purchase? That's really, I think, the biggest uh, factor when it comes to conversion. First lesson of every copywriting course, absolutely. Can you tell me how it translates into freebies? So for example, you have an amazing um, freebie course that is a video, one hour long. How do you structure such a free video to both provide value and then pitch your paid solution? There's two types of free offers that I often share with course creators. One is more bite-sized. I usually call it an FAQ freebie. It's often just a PDF download or something very quick. This to me is the ultimate email list builder. You want to figure out what is the question that your prospective buyers are already out there asking. And then you want to put yourselves in front of them with the solution. So for Wit & Wire, I'm often asked about which course platforms I recommend. So I have a freebie that compares those platforms side by side and offers all of my recommendations for course creators at different budgets. And I share that through YouTube. I share it on Instagram. I share it through guesting opportunities. I share it everywhere. So that helps answer that bite-sized question, but it doesn't help them answer all of their questions. It kind of opens up a new realm of, well, now that I have the tools, how do I actually make a course that would sell? So that brings in the second type of free offer that I think can work well for course creators, which is a free training, sometimes called a webinar, a masterclass, sometimes a free challenge, but I have found more success with a free training. And the point of that for my business is I get to showcase my expertise by providing real value. So for me, if I sell a course about how to create and sell online courses, which I know is very meta, I would need a training that walked people through the exact answer to that question. Now, it's only an hour. I'm not going to have time to get into 
in-depth assignments or writing things down, but I can provide a high-level overview of the process. I can address common misconceptions or myths about it. So my goal is to provide real value in that training and then to transparently talk about the paid offer that I have. There's no pressure to make a purchase. I want anybody who watches the free training to walk away and still feel like they really got a ton out of it. But ultimately, it is a sales tool and not one that I think any of us should be ashamed of. We are businesses at the end of the day. And if we can provide real value and then offer a paid solution to provide even deeper value, that is also of service to our audience. So those are the two types of freebies I often talk about. And the question you mentioned about the comparison between the course platforms, that's I saw that your most popular YouTube video as well. I think for your standards, it, it's basically viral <laughs> considering that you don't have that many subscribers, but it, I think it's like 10 times the views on subscribers. And I wonder, how do you get the questions from your audience that you need to answer? How do you do the research, where the feedback comes from? So we talked earlier about the value of building an email list, not just because you have people to sell to, but because this validates demand. These email subscribers ask me questions. They literally reply to my emails. They leave me comments on Instagram. As you start to get paying students, they also ask a ton of questions. And obviously, I've been in the industry for a long time. So I had some awareness. I already knew what a lot of the common questions were because I have been hearing them for years. So if you start to just notice, this is a good thing to pay attention to. What do people ask you about all the time? In particular, what I noticed with some creators is that they're always sending the same answers via DMs, via comments, via email replies. So instead of replying with the answer, I would challenge any of you to think, how could I package that as a free thing? How could I create a PDF, a quick spreadsheet, a shopping list, a checklist? Like, what could I do that I could start to build my email list by replying with, hey, I actually have a free guide about that. You can download it here. So I would just start to pay attention. What are those FAQs? And then start to see how you can provide the answer. Okay. So if email is the most important channel, what's your email strategy? How often, how much writing? Is it just short form and then straight to your blog or all value in the email? How do you look at it? I think different businesses have different approaches here. I would say the minimum I would want to email my list is every other week. I think some people do monthly, but I would say you want to do at least every other week. For me, my maximum is weekly. That's my standard pace for the Wit & Wire weekly. Uh, and so although people might do more, that is a lot to me. I do that during very high like sales promo windows only. But the weekly newsletter for me is a good way to share one specific course creation strategy. And then I also typically curate other resources like promos on some of my favorite tools, new feature releases from some of my favorite tools. So I think a good takeaway from just what I do at Wit & Wire is that even if you aren't creating weekly content, that doesn't mean you can't have a regular newsletter. You can become a thought leader by curating and by sharing things that are valuable. Or if you don't want to start a YouTube channel, I don't blame you. It's a ton of work. What if instead you had an Instagram account or a LinkedIn account and you shared one thoughtful carousel or piece of content on just a LinkedIn post? And that was the basis of the email strategy for the week. And circling back to our repurposing conversation, I think this is where repurposing gets it right. The way that I see it, every week I have one topic. I share it via email. It links to, for me, a YouTube video where I go in-depth on that topic. And that could be the basis of, I think, a really successful email strategy. So maybe that one topic per week mentality can help some creators. You mentioned uh, that YouTube is a lot of work. What isn't, I would ask. Everything, if you do it right, takes some work, right? 
um, where would you put um, at your attention if you started it alongside your full-time job, just a side hustle? Would you just grab a phone and make a short TikToks or do blog posts, but do them right, do your proper research? Where would your attention be? It would probably depend on who my audience was, but whatever channel I would pick, I would just only pick one of them. I think one of the worst things that new business owners, new creators can do is try to be on YouTube and do blog posts and do Pinterest and do Instagram and and do all of these things at once. Instead, I usually do something where I commit to a channel for usually one to three months. I usually plan in quarters. So for me, there was a, a, a quarter where I said, I'm going to start YouTube. And I committed. I went all in. I wanted to see how it would feel. And by the end, if it had done well, I could continue. But if not, I could give myself permission to stop. I want to make sure I give it enough time. But you also don't have to make it like a permanent decision that you're going all in forever. So I think for me, if I were starting my exact business, Wit & Wire, today, I would probably start with just YouTube and then building an email list and go from there. But that doesn't mean that's the right decision for everybody. Other people might decide to do blog posts. Somebody else might decide, let me just start with TikTok and go from there. So I would say decide and commit to one platform and see where that takes you. Talking about YouTube, what kind of metrics would you choose? So you say you have to give it enough time, let's say half a year. What are you looking at? Is it view time? Is it um, subscribers? Or is it actually email subscribers at the end of the day? There's two ways you could look at this. One is what makes a YouTube channel successful? Like what are the metrics that YouTubers should be looking at? But then the other half is me at Wit & Wire. How do I know if a channel is working for me? So on YouTube, undeniably watch time is the metric to look for. That is what every YouTube expert I know says that you should be paying attention to. And then I think the way that that manifests itself long-term is when you release new videos, are you starting to see that you're getting more viewers kind of over time? Not every video will have the same view count. Some will really get picked up, others won't. And in fact, YouTube is a long game. A lot of my videos I couldn't have known would be as successful as they are until six months to a year later. So for me, early success was just measured by the fact that my subscriber count was consistently growing and I was getting really positive feedback on the videos. That was just the YouTube side. But then for me, Wit & Wire, I look at money. Like my number one metric is revenue. I have no real interest in being like an influencer. I don't feel the need to have 100,000 subscribers. I would rather have $100,000. So I want to measure how are people finding Wit & Wire after they make a purchase. To say that differently, when people do purchase from me, I ask them how they heard about my business. And those are the answers that tell me where my energy should go. And I know that within the last year, people are telling me they find Wit & Wire on YouTube, TikTok, and through referrals. So that really helped validate that those are the channels I could I should continue working on. Is that the first email? Like you asked them already in the welcome email, where did you hear from me? That, that's the first thing you do? It's part of the student orientation process in my signature courses. So it's within the first week, yeah. Got it. All right. Um, now, every podcaster's uh, favorite little uh, sec segment, which is a quick fire round. I love this. You have to do it with me, okay? Already. <laughs> a, a, bit, a bit personal, uh, a bit professional, and some quick answers from you, right? Are you a team player or lone wolf? I'm a team player. Uh, do you take risks or you carefully calculate? Carefully calculate. Mobile or desktop? desktop. Who inspires you most? My dad. And what profession other than your own right now would you like to attempt? Ooh. I'd be a food critic. Give me all the food. 
Um, what is an underappreciated business tool that you couldn't live without? Oh, that's a tough question. As somebody who evaluates professional, like this is what I do for a living. So it'd be hard to pick just one. And I know it's quick fire. What's something underrated? Maybe post-it notes. Physical post-it notes. Mm -hmm. That surprised me. Okay, what's your productivity life hack? Fill my capacity up to 80% because the other 20% will fill itself up. Pump it. And what does success mean to you? It means having the freedom to make any choices I want in my life without worry. It's the comfort to have a lifestyle that I like to support my family, to do work that's meaningful, and to inspire other people to do the same. Love it. Do you feel you're there yet or you still have a way to go? I think it's both. I think I'm already there and I have ideas on how I can continue to evolve. Awesome. Okay, to finish this conversation, for which I'm extremely grateful, you've been amazing. I need to ask you as a professional critic, maybe not food critic, but a podcast critic, how was how, how was the interview? What can I improve? I think the best, uh, the best compliment I can give is that it's obvious that you did your research. I go on a lot of podcasts I'm interviewed often, and without question, the best ones are always when people have really taken their time to get to know the guest and what they do, because then you get valuable answers that are of service to your audience. So I think you've aced it. And I just had a pleasure being here. Awesome. Thank you so much, Melissa. And uh, I'll see you around. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I think we got some pretty good answers. And I don't mind a little compliment as well. More value in the very next episode of Careers 2.0. Stay tuned. <laughs>